Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 335 of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Kindness in Combat, an interview with Tony Felice. Folks, we named this episode Kindness in Combat because we knew that Tony Felice was going to be a hard-charging guy. He looks like a football player. He has the background of a football player, and he is very aggressive in advocating for himself and advocating for his health. But as it turns out, what was really cool about this interview is how kind Tony is and how much grace he showed himself, how much grace he showed all the other people he was interacting with, and quite frankly, even the amount of grace he showed me and Danny during this interview. So folks, without further ado, we're really excited to introduce to you Tony Felice, Kindness in Combat. Hey, Tony Felice, and welcome to the Tick Bootcamp Podcast. Uh, hello, Rich. How are you doing today? Thank you for having me. Well, we're really excited to have you, Tony. And as you know from our um, our earlier conversation or our pre-roll conversation, uh, Matt and I have been really looking forward to interviewing you. You're doing great work in the community. And uh, we really thought it would be wonderful for our community to meet you and to learn from you. So, uh, you know, we can't thank you enough for taking time out of your you know, really busy schedule professionally and personally. Um, and so thank you. Thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Oh, you're quite welcome. Thank you for all the work that you're doing to help people uh, who don't have a lot of resources. And uh, so the work that you're doing is is very important, and I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you. And, and we have another blessing today, Tony, and that is our good friend Danny Tiger has agreed to serve as a co-host uh, with me. And um, yeah. everywhere I will fail everyone, Danny will be picking up, uh, you know, picking up the load. So, uh, Danny, thank you so much for agreeing to uh, be with us today. Thanks so much for having me back, Rich. You guys are such a blessing in my life. I've learned so much from you guys and we've become great friends. And I'm super excited to meet Tony and hear his story. So glad to be here. All right. So cool. So, all right, Tony. So give us uh, some of your, uh, some of your background. Let's, let's first talk about um, where you live and what you currently do for work. Uh, I live between Phoenix and San Diego, uh, which means I live in Phoenix and San Diego, not in Yuma. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I live between Phoenix and San Diego. I'm blessed to have a place in both cities. My company is headquartered in Phoenix and we spend most of our time in San Diego, largely because of my chronic condition. Um, I am the owner uh, and founder of the Felice Agency, which is a marketing and branding uh, company. And we specialize in helping really cool businesses um, who make a difference in the world. That's our specialty. <laughs> cool. So um, let's talk about where you grew up. I'd like to know a little bit about your background uh, right. from your childhood <laughs> forward, because I understand that you weren't always a West coast guy. That's right. I grew up near Annapolis, Maryland in Calvert County, Maryland. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, uh, I went to, uh, um, uh, I'm an art school dropout who years later graduated from the College of Engineering. And now I basically make art for a living, right? You never know where life is going to take you. Um, this whole conversation is going to be largely about that. But I grew up in Annapolis. I worked on Capitol Hill. Um, I was blessed to work uh, for Chrysler Motors Corporation next, right next door to the White House. And uh, I left there and went to Park Avenue in New York and worked um, there for a while. And then I uh, was in Hollywood, California and uh, worked on some projects there, including um, Steven Spielberg's Manhattan Beach Studios and a couple of restaurants and hotels. Uh, and then I moved to Arizona to go back to grad school. And uh, when I finished college, 
I, I did not finish my master's, but I did finish my undergrad. I only have uh, a few courses left to finish my master's. Um, I started my own business and I um, have uh, uh, flourished in Phoenix. And uh, uh, about 10 years ago, we did, we bought it. We moved to uh, the beach um, largely because of the heat. Uh, is too much for me in Arizona. And so we've split our time now for the last 10 years between um, these those two cities. Um, so let's let's pause there for a second, Tony, because I, I, I don't want to get too far into this without asking the question that we always ask folks who have grown up in the line belt, right? You were a Maryland kid, uh, so you're right. an East Coast guy. And so tell us, what do you know about ticks and tick diseases? Uh, only, only what you had described in the pre-roll conversation, which was Rocky Mountain spotted fever, that had been a conversation going on around in Maryland. And we knew about ticks and we checked for ticks. And it was kind of like a, a running joke to get a tick check on the way home. And, uh, uh, or when we got home, our mom would look, uh, in, in our hair and between our toes and everywhere. Um, and so we were aware of it, but we were not aware of the debilitating nature of uh, diseases associated with tick bites. Uh, but I was outdoors all the time. I sailed. I was always in the woods. I was always playing with my friends in the woods or or uh, I was playing football. And when you play football, you're on the grass for hours and hours and hours and hours. And uh, so I constantly had bugs climbing all over me growing up and um, and I'd been bit by ticks. Uh, when I was growing up, I think that I have been bit multiple times and I've been infected multiple times with uh, with Lyme and or one of its co-infections over the years. But uh, but growing up, we knew about it, but no one really talked about it. And we just hoped that we wouldn't get this strange disease called Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. So now the so you had this general social awareness where you had at least a a a, a mother who was concerned about your health and knew enough about this, uh, you know, the potential that her children would get sick to force you, I guess, to do tick checks when you came in from being outside. Right. But other than having your mom ask you to be, you know, um, polite enough to allow her to check you for ticks, was there anything else that you knew about it? Meaning, you know, you, you were afraid of this disease and, right. and because, um, you're close to my age, you were, you know, you were dealing with this prior to the discovery of the Lyme bacteria. Right. Um, were there any steps that um, that you were taking or your mom was was taking for you after you were bitten by a tick and after the tick was being removed? Yeah, we would wear long tube socks. Back then it was fashionable. It was the 1970s. So we had long tube socks. So that was a good thing that that, that came into fashion. But we had short shorts, right? And so she always made us wear long sleeves when we were playing in the woods or if we were uh, if we were going to uh, to the beach uh, in um, Southern Maryland, in Ocean City, Maryland. Uh, we often stayed in an area that was very wooded around the bay, and she was very, very she was very focused about that. My first job around 13 years old, I was a stable boy, and I took care of horses, and we were very mindful of the ticks. Uh, on the horses. We were trained to get them off. And we were just told that they could make the horses sick. And if the horse got sick, it had to be put down. That's what they told us. So that was the extent of my knowledge of uh, and and uh, of, of Lyme disease. In fact, there was no such thing as Lyme disease back then. It was just ticks can make you sick. Right. So uh, so you had a great deal of, of Lyme awareness, which is interesting because I had the same experience. I'm a little bit older than you. And um, 
And we were very aware of ticks during our childhood. One of the things that I find interesting is when I'm interviewing and when we are interviewing younger folk, generally what we're hearing is not what you just described. Um, it's, so it's almost like, you know, there was a sort of lost knowledge or this lost, um, you know, the, this lost awareness because most of the people we interview tell us they knew nothing about ticks, nothing about tick diseases. Right. And, um, and the first time they heard about tick diseases or Lyme in particular was after they were diagnosed. So what are you, what are your thoughts about that? That folks from our generation were much more aware of these diseases and much more aware of the, of the possibility of getting sick if we weren't protecting ourselves from tick bites? Well, the world's changed a lot since the 1970s, I can tell you that. Um, we've grown more me-centric, um, and uh, there, mm, that's a, that, that, that could be a long discussion about the, uh, about the nature of humanity, right? And um, it, it, coming from that generation of, uh, of being born in 1964 and growing up in the 1970s and leaving home in the, in the early 1980s, it felt different to me. The world was full of, of difficult things the way it still is, but there was more kindness. There was more community. There were, we looked out for each other. We held the door open for each other. We, we had more common courtesy. We picked the trash up when we saw it. And so it makes more sense that we would talk about these things as a community. As we've grown more me-centric and become desensitized almost to the intimacy of, of real human uh, interaction, uh, we've become immune to discussions about those things. And I, I, I wish I had an answer for you. Um, th there are nefarious answers that people will give you um, as to the reason why. Um, and that has to do with influencing public perception and public opinion um, as a response to uh, what could be a dangerous situation for people if it was found out what the root cause is and who's at fault and who was asleep at the wheel and who may have caused this. And I'm not here to get into any of that, frankly. I did for a while and it made me sick and it made me sad. I will tell you that I wish we had more conversations like we're having right now. And that's why I love podcasts, more dinner conversations. We, we, we sat around the family, I sat around as a family and had dinner back then. We talked about these things. People don't sit around the table and, and, and talk about these things anymore. And if they are at the table, most people are on their phones. Right. And so uh, I wish I had a good answer for you. I think that the, I'm chipping away at the edges, but this this podcast is doing is filling in the gap, and more people like you, uh, if they emerge, uh, then they are going to uh, fill the gap for sure. So, Tony, I think you really are hitting something, uh, hitting on something, and that is we we sort of become culturally siloed, right? Because where I grew up, we talked about ticks all the time. And in my family, where we also had dinner together all the time, we talked about ticks and tick diseases all the time. And I think we, we are probably from a similar culture. I had a very aggressive Italian mother. I still have an aggressive Italian mother. And, and she was somebody that was very much on top of making sure that we were doing tick checks and we were tick aware. So I think this sort of cultural silo that you are you're describing or the cultural siloing is really a problem because we're not getting this information in the educational system. And I certainly didn't, but it was something that came to us from our family and from our community. And it sounds like that was the same thing that was going on with you. The fact that everyday Americans do not know that ticks are in every state is problematic. 
The fact that everyday Americans don't understand that one tick bite could ruin their life is problematic. The fact that people don't know if a child gets Lyme and any of the host of co-infections, their life could be over it before it begins. So absolutely, we should be having these conversations. And of course, some of the most recent data has indicated that one in 15 people in the world, literally one in 15, um, is affected with the Lyme bacteria, just Borrelia burgdorferi, right? I mean, we know that, We not even a discussion of co-infections and, and, and what impact that's having, yet as you just pointed out, we're not having that conversation. It isn't dinner time conversation. Right. It isn't cultural conversation. It isn't political conversation. It's just right. kind of weird. Well, uh, we we'll get to that point later. But uh, later in my life, I did end up sitting on the board of an organization called Focus on Lyme, which all its uh, the sole purpose was to fund research to create a test that is more accurate than the existing tests that are 50% accurate, if at best, right? And forget about the co-infections, right? Forget about being tested for Babesia, Bartonella, or any host of co-infections three, four, five weeks to a month after infection, let alone 10 years, right? So people don't even under, people don't know that there are over 30 species of Borrelia, 30 species, and each species can impact uh, the human body in a different way. It can present neurologically, it can present musculoskeletal, it can present uh, uh, cardio, cardio. You can get cardionecritis where the heart literally dies. Why are we not talking about a disease that can cause your heart to die? <laughs> in fact, Dr. Spector, one of the most famous uh, Lyme researchers, in fact, he was a physician who was told by his colleagues that he was just depressed, probably. No one caught it. And he ended up having to have a heart transplant. One of the best cardiologists in the world. The irony there, he has a heart transplant. And, and unfortunately, he's no longer with us. He passed two, three years ago. Right. And so why are we not having this conversation? It's one of the one of life's ironies for me. We certainly have a lot of conversations about cancer, and a lot of people are still dying from cancer. A lot of people, we have conversations about Parkinson's. Uh, many scientists think that there's a, it's either the smoking gun or there's a link. There's a link between uh, vector-borne diseases and autoimmune diseases. So let's walk this back a little bit and and come back to your story. I'm I'm really enjoying this already, but let's let's walk it back and talk a little bit about your story because there is a gap now between uh, your move out to Hollywood and some of the work you were doing right. as a, as a young person before you finished your graduate work, right. and now where you are um, as as an entrepreneur. So give us that give it fill in that gap for us. Right, um, professionally or or health wise or, or Let, let's start with professional and we're gonna, then we're gonna move over and pivot to your health. So uh, I uh, I worked on Capitol Hill for Chrysler Motors on environmental and occupational and safe safety and health matters. And I reported to Detroit about activities that were going on after the rule, after the law is passed, it's got to be implemented. And so all the government agencies that are involved, I reported on that. Then I went to New York City, worked for KPMG Marwick, and I split my time between Washington and, and New York, and I helped them with their communication efforts. And then I uh, was discovered on stage, uh, moonlighting with uh, friends that I'd been doing improv with for about nine years, and I was discovered, and, and it took about six months to convince me to go to Hollywood. I worked Worked in Hollywood for several years um, and uh, had some fun doing that. But really, I missed 
uh, my career, which was in uh, marketing and advertising and, and PR. And I went back to a PR firm and I worked for the PR firm that represented Manhattan Beach Studios and uh, 1-800-USED-CARS and KTLA and Jimmy's Beverly Hills. And it was super fun. And I've been very fortunate to have sort of a Forrest Gump life. You know, I've been able to do some really cool things and meet presidents and shake hands with famous people and work with famous people. And it was really wonderful. Across that period of time, which we can get to, there were peaks and valleys health-wise that I believe all go back to the, to the original uh, tick bite that I must have gotten when I was a young child. All right. So you've teased it and we have to now go there because folks are going to be very upset if we don't get to your health. So, um, you know, from, from seeing your Instagram, you look like a very healthy person now, and you just share with us that you were an athlete, you're a football player. So talk to us about, you know, a, what role athletics played in your life and talk to us about the, the, the peaks and valleys of your, your health journey from your youth in Maryland, uh, to the time you were diagnosed with Lyme disease. Right. Thank you. So uh, I've always been an athlete. I played football and uh, I played all the sports when I was in elementary school and high school. Um, mostly in, in in high school, I played football, but in uh, middle school and elementary school, I played basketball and baseball and softball. Um, I've always found I, I've always enjoyed athletics, volleyball, hiking, biking. Um, and I was very active as a kid. And I was and I was uh, in great shape as a kid. And then um, and then all of a sudden, I put on a lot of weight around 13 years old. Coincidentally, I came down and I was sick for a while. Um, but over the years, I've always been an athlete and I've always uh, found a way to remain an athlete, no matter how sick that I've been. And that sort of uh, uh, being physically fit and um, enjoying athletics, you can draw upon that when you are ill. If it wasn't for that muscular conditioning, if it wasn't for the mm, the commitment and the resolve and the grit that it takes to play sports. And I don't care if your sports are being a ballet dancer or a or or, or, or an acrobat or gymnast. Uh, it doesn't matter which sport it is. It's it's the idea of everything that that is brought to you when you play a sport. You can draw upon those things when you're sick. And I, and I have, but so I've been healthy pretty much my whole life. And I've been an athlete my whole life from lifting weights to, um, to doing all the other things that we just talked about. So Tony, now let's, let's, let's visit that as, as an athlete, uh, and as, uh, even at this stage in your life, as, as it appears to be an Uber athlete, uh, there are some, there, there is this concept of, of the inverted you. And one of the things we learned from Dr. Joseph Buriscano, who is one of the Lyme pioneers uh, here from uh, from New York, um, what he discovered early on when he was treating people with Lyme disease in the in the late 70s and the early 80s was that if you didn't move, you wouldn't heal. So movement mm -hmm. and athletic movement is vital to healing from right. Lyme disease, right? And, and and part of it is detox, and there are a number of different reasons. But the other thing that he discovered, and this again is in the early 70s and late, uh, I'm sorry, late 70s, early 80s was that there is there is this um this this problem with um overworking and 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 uh you know so too much aerobic exercise and actually too too much anaerobic exercise 
uh, right. will have this impact where it would actually reduce your T cell count and make you more vulnerable to, to getting sick from the disease or not recovering from the disease. Right. So talk to us about how you balanced athletics, but at the same time, make sure that you weren't overworking yourself or remaining healthy because you weren't overworking. Or maybe you did overwork and that's why you started to, uh, to suffer from some, uh, some symptoms. Well, the first step is to stop comparing yourself to everybody else. Okay. If you can't do that when you're sick, <laughs> uh, then it's, it, you know, then try to do it when you're well. Uh, and the first thing is stop comparing yourself to other people. The second thing is to listen to your body and be your, be your mom and your dad. I, it's the best thing I can say is that you can't, you can't, you can't lie to them. They always know when you're lying, right? And so you just have to ask yourself, is this too much? Am I pushing myself enough? And what I do is I, I figure out what 80% of my exertion is. And then I use my brain to determine what the logical amount of exertion should be for my physical being right now. Now, when you're in the middle of Lyme and you have not had a diagnosis and you've, you're taking a million supplements and you're sick and you've had the flu, which is what it can feel like for some people, you've had the flu for two years, dragging your ass off the couch and going out and working out when you're browsing Instagram and seeing all this beautiful people is hard as shit. It's hard to do that. So you have to love yourself. And, and especially if you were athletic before, then you know you can get back there. You, we have all kinds of we have all kinds of research to suggest that if you're an athlete before you get sick, you can be an athlete again. It, it's going to be easier for you. I feel sorry for the people who were not athletic prior to becoming sick because they don't have that to draw upon, and they've got to find it. And we have to dig deep. It's one thing to tell someone to stop eating fried chicken and go to the gym and their life can turn around, right? It's another thing to tell someone to get off the couch that it can't regulate their body temperature, that feels like they're going to fall down, that has tremors, that can't even go down and uh, can't even go down the handicap ramp without shaking the entire way after having been an athlete before, right? So the best step, the best thing I can say to anyone is listen to your body and be truthful with yourself. Don't push yourself and don't let yourself get away with not working hard enough. So now talk to us a little bit more about your health journey. You shared with us you were bitten by ticks many times during your childhood in Maryland. Right. Uh, when did you first now start to feel symptomatic? And of course, we're asking you to look back because right. you, you probably have some experiences at the time you didn't know were a part of the Lyme disease right. journey which now looking back, uh, you, you, right. you do. So talk to us about your, your health and, and, and those elements of your health journey that you think are connected to your Lyme disease journey. Right. Well, I've been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis seven times in my life. I have come to believe that I probably was bit by a tick and that's the reason why I, it manifested as MS, but they didn't know what it was back then. You had mentioned before, there was no name for it. My the first time I got sick was around 14 years old, and I came down with a, a, a lingering cold or flu, and then I my weight ballooned up suddenly out of nowhere. This is an athletic kid who's probably burning 5,000 calories a day and eating 2,500. Right? There's no reason for me to have suddenly become chubby, right, and lethargic, and I could not hold my pencil in school. Sometimes the um, 
sometimes I would lose my grip strength and I, uh, I, I would try to will myself to be able to hold the pencil. I could not even hold the pencil. And I tried with my other hand. And, and there were times when I had to talk my way out of a D because I could not take the test. I didn't know what was wrong with me. And I didn't tell anyone because I was afraid that, I don't know, I was afraid they would think I didn't measure up, right? So I kept it to myself. And then my vision went suddenly. I had great vision. Then all of a sudden, I needed glasses out of nowhere. And I had to wear glasses. And then I got, then I got better. And, I, and I, uh, uh, I went back to playing football. And then in 1989, I got sick again. I had, I had migraines that wouldn't go away. I, had, I felt like I had the flu. I had joint aches that were really bad. And I went, uh, I went to uh, my doctor at the time. They ran all these tests. Finally, they did a spinal tap on me and uh, it came back inconclusive. He said, we see something, but we don't know what it is and it's pathological. So right now, the best guess that our colleagues have come up with, they call it lowland swamp fever. That's what I was originally diagnosed with, lowland swamp fever. And I've tried looking that up so many times now, right? Maybe I've got the terminology wrong. Maybe it's just swamp fever, but I could have sworn he said lowland swamp fever. And they put me on a course of antibiotics for two weeks. And then uh, I didn't improve for almost six months. And then I started to improve and I got healthy again. I got, became an athlete again and started running again. And then uh, I was doing great until I moved to Los Angeles. And I was in, in Los Angeles for three months and I got sick again. But right, before you go there, so right. what is lowland swamp fever? Well, what is that? Well, Lyme disease did not become named Lyme disease until like the early 1990s, okay? Like right around that period of 1989 to 1993, as, as my research has shown, but it's been a long time since I've done research, so I could be full of it. I could be full of it. But uh, I, but uh, that was the diagnosis that they give me, and that was the time period. In fact, my doctor called me, and I was at the office, and he said, "Where are you?" And I said, "I'm, uh, uh, I'm at the office." He goes, "I need you to walk down the street and go to the emergency room at George Washington Hospital." I said, "What?" He goes, "Yes, you're, I'm looking at your X-rays right now, and you have venous thrombosis." And you have to go to the hospital immediately. So I went to the hospital immediately. They did another MRI on me. It was inconclusive. So within the space of 48 hours, I went from having venous thrombosis to not having venous thrombosis. I think that was a symptom of Lyme disease. There's a condition called chronic cere- uh, CCSVI, chronic cerebral spinal venous insufficiency, which is related to multiple sclerosis, but I think it's actually related to Lyme. And that is where the carotid artery uh, blocks and does not uh, flush the blood the blood from the brain appropriately. So it pulls on the brain all of the bad blood. It's uh, it has no oxygen. It's full of toxins, and it just sits there because the carotid artery isn't doing so well. So uh, I think it may have been tied to that all those years ago. Wow. Okay, so now, so you you have your you have you, the first part of your journey is when you're 14. You now have a second part of your journey, which is in 19. Said, so about 19 years old, and then again around 25 years old. Um, and then I was doing pretty good until uh, I think I, I I adopted a dog in Arizona. The dog was covered in ticks, and I would wake up at night, and the ticks would be biting me. And this is before I knew anything about Lyme disease, really. I knew nothing about it. And I so just pulled it off like 
whatever. And so I believe I got uh, that that I got infected again. Um, and I uh, that time I it was more neurological and more um, more of the MS related a um, uh, little bit of cognitive problems, but really mostly just uh, constantly exhausted and and massive joint and muscle pain. All right. So now Whopper was Cape Cod when I was bit in 2011. That's when the whole house of cards came down. All right. So give us that part of the journey. So you, so you, you, you sort of have, you've having, you're having these ebbs and flows and you, you probably now believe that you've been managing Lyme disease since you were a child. Um, You were relatively healthy. You were able to manage these sort of ebbs and flows but then, then the house does crash in on you um, when you go to Cape Cod. So talk to us about the Cape Cod experience and what happened there. Well, what's different about that experience from all the other ones is that now I'm a business owner. And being a business owner, as you know, is not for the faint of heart. Being an entrepreneur requires strength of spirit like you never thought you have. And, it, and the odds are stacked against us. And it's tough, right? And so... There's a lot of stress and pressure that comes from that. So I think that 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 the stress of being a business owner um, and just emerging out of the downturn of 2008, I started my business in March of 2008, and then the economy tanked. Right. So I just got through all of that, and we went in 2008, uh, 2011, uh, to Cape Cod to, vi- to visit friends, and I noticed that bugs on my legs and ticks and I was brushing them off. Again, I wasn't really that very aware of Lyme disease. And um, uh, three of us ended up coming down. Uh, Three of us were eventually diagnosed with Lyme disease and the dog didn't make it. Um, All coming from that one episode. This one was on a scale of one to 10. This was a 17. I woke up uh, a couple days after we left and my entire groin area was purple. It had raised spots and uh, bruises like you wouldn't believe all along the back of my legs and the front of my legs. I woke up and we had to get on a plane to go to Thanksgiving in Detroit. I almost went to the emergency room in Detroit and said, no, I don't wanna ruin Thanksgiving for my husband, Tim. We were at his family's. So then we went to New York and I walked around New York for five days with this going on, wondering what the, am I going to die? Right. And feeling like I had the flu and it just got worse and worse and worse. The vertigo and the, um, the muscle shakes and the evil bloom that would, I'd wake up in the middle of the night and there would be this pain that would start in my breastbone and spread out. And I was convinced I was having a heart attack and dying. My inability to regulate my core temperature. So I'd be sweating bullets uh, standing in front of a fan. And then the tremors, not even be able to go down uh, a handicap ramp, let alone stairs and on a cane and and, and put on a hundred pounds and so sick. And no one has any answers. No. So so let's pause there, right? Because you have what I think everyone listening to this podcast would would argue is classic acute Lyme disease symptoms and beginning to convert into classic chronic Lyme disease symptoms. So with all of this classic symptomology, I'm assuming you went to a doctor and you were diagnosed right away or why am I wrong? 
Oh yeah. I went to a doctor right away. They told me exactly what I needed to do. And I sailed out of there and I ran along and had a happy life. Not. I went to 24 specialists, everyone, rheumatologists, dermatologists, Chinese medicine, acupuncture, chiropractic, neurology, rheumatology, you name it, every single one. The first doctor I went to was a neurologist who waved his hand in front of my face and told me, I don't, you don't have Lyme disease. All right. So (laughs) what, you know what, again, I'm watching you know, I'm watching the train go down the tracks and I'm watching, you know, watching this crash happen. Um, and, and I just find it hard to believe that a guy goes to Cape Cod and we know there are ticks all over the place at Cape Cod. We, you know, it's, they're, they're, they're always in the news because they're always trying to come up with creative ways of stopping the 99% of the people at Cape Cod from who have Lyme disease, or, you know, who live there get Lyme disease. Uh, so I guess my first question is, before you went to the Cape, were you aware that it was uh, that it was more than tick endemic? Um, and were there any warnings given to you about protecting yourself from getting bitten by ticks when you arrived to the cake? I, it was so far off my radar screen. I wasn't I, I was no one ever talked about it. I didn't think I had it. I went to Cape Cod. We didn't talk about it. We didn't think about it. There were no signs. There was n- nothing, nothing. In fact, my two friends who also came down with it, um, uh, they're in they're, they're in Massachusetts, and the, even they struggled to get an appropriate diagnosis, right? So the answer to your question is no, nobody told me anything. Okay. And that's okay. I don't need I'm not I don't need to be nursemaided through life. And these things well, happen. No, but, but you need to be properly diagnosed, that, Tony. I mean, like, right. you know, I mean, being told about Lyme, like I'm okay with that. I'm okay that there were no signs. I'm okay that I didn't know about it. That's fine. But what I don't find acceptable is is the journey I had to go on. And if I start to get angry, you've probably heard it before. I am. I, I graduated from the College of Engineering with a very high GPA. I'm not an idiot. Okay, I can make reasonable inferences from good data. And it was so hard to find good data. First of all, it took me two years to even figure out that I might have Lyme. I could have had lupus, ALS. I mean, I thought I just had uh, that I was suffering from MS. Two years without a diagnosis, we went back to Boston and I was nervous about going. And we were at the place called Land's Land's End outside of Boston, where my husband and our best friend were running with her dad, running while I'm barely able to walk across. And I, st- I remember I was standing on this uh, little wooden bridge and the, uh, the water was going out to the ocean and I could see the ocean beyond. And I stood there doing the math in my head of the ways that I could take my life with the least amount of damage. And the only reason why I didn't take my life was because of my husband. And the fact that I chose, I happened to be so lucky to find this amazing human being. That is the only reason why I'm still here today. And it was six months after that when I finally got the answer I was looking for. But I am one of the, all of the people I'm sure that you've spoken to who have seriously contemplated the worst choice that anyone should have to be forced to make. Well, thank God for Tim. And we're going to talk more about him in a minute, but I, I do want to 
talk a little bit more about um, your, um, your, your diagnosis. And, you know, Phyllis Bedford from the Limelight Foundation calls Lyme disease uh, the supermarket disease, where in most cases you are getting a better diagnosis when you're in the supermarket and bumping into a friend or a family member rather than going to a, to a, uh, a medical doctor's office. Right. Um, so give us a little bit more about how frustrating it is for someone like you um, who, um, who, who has the resources to see scores of doctors, um, who has the familial support to help you to uh, see uh, scores of doctors, and, um, and not getting a diagnosis despite telling them that, I'm assuming, that you're at Cape Cod, that you had very classic symptoms, that other people had very similar symptoms, and you couldn't get a diagnosis. Right. Listen, I wish I honestly had an answer for you. I don't know why, and I don't know how I did it. I had confusion and brain fog so bad. I don't know how I kept my business. I don't know how I eventually found the naturopath that I went to. Well, I happened to be going to school with him. Um, I went to the naturopath who I've never cried from getting a, from getting a diagnosis. I've, ne I've never cried from relief right? I mean, who wants to be told something's wrong with you? And for two years, I did not have a diagnosis. And when that doctor came into, oh, I'll never forget, I was laying on the, I was laying on the exam table. Uh, and I had to push the exam table away from the window because of the heat radiating from the window. I had to push the exam table. And I was laying there and I brought it down to put one foot on the floor because the world was spinning. And I was like, I don't know, this is my ninth visit here. What am I going to do if he comes in here and tells me he still doesn't know what's wrong with me? And he came in and he said, well, I have news for you. And I said, what? He said, you've tested positive for Lyme disease. And I and cried. You cried, you cried, you cried. You cried because you you uh, were relieved that you finally had a diagnosis. You cried because you believed that this was going to be an opportunity for you to now move forward with your healing, or you or you cried because um, you were diagnosed with what you thought was going to be a horrific disease. What was what was the trigger for for the tears? Imagine being invisible for years and someone confirming that you exist, okay? Uh, there's a thing that happens to your friends' faces after six months and you're not well. There's a friend, there's a thing that happens after two years, they fall away. They start to have the their eyes cloud over like, mm, poor Tony, I wonder if he's just a hypochondriac. You feel it. You know, we all have the, we're not, while we're not telepathic, we can sense people's body language. We can sense what they're not saying versus what they're saying. And friends fell off, opportunities fell away, invitations stopped coming. And you started wondering if you were losing your mind. Am I doing this to myself? Why? Do I hate myself? No. Do I enjoy my company? Yes. Uh, am I capable of extraordinary things? Fuck yes, sorry. Um, I am. What, what's happening? And the doctor comes in and tells you, you have a disease and you have a sigh of relief. I mean, that is screwed up. 
that is really screwed up. And, and the impact that gaslighting has on your mindset and your capacity to heal from that point forward is, is horrific. And Danny's going to take you on, on, your, um, on your plan and the steps that you took uh, to go on your healing journey. Uh, right. before, before Danny takes you there, I'd like you to talk to us a little bit more about Tim and, uh, and the important role family plays in supporting you when you're going through this invalidating element of this journey. Uh, you said that you were losing friends and you're losing confidence, but you said it was Tim and, and your relationship with him that helped you to keep enough hope so that you wouldn't take your life. So share with us more about Tim and your relationship with him and how important it was to have someone love you the way that he does and did during that element of your journey. Imagine Captain Kirk falling in love with Spock. And you can imagine our scenario, right? I'm the passionate one. I'm the one that's, uh, that's you know, bigger than life sometimes. I'm hell-bent on something. And he brings prudence and, and, and logic. And he's so loving and logical that he doesn't go through the gyrations that you and I go through. I mean, I'm Italian, Irish, and Jewish. I, good luck with that. <laughs> right? <laughs> A lot good of luck passionate with cultures. Right. So he's very, he he's non-reactive. Like, I can't imagine. I mean, this is a tough road to ha uh, haul for someone dealing with someone who has chronic illness like this. We're not always we're not always happy. Sometimes we're depressed. Sometimes we are at our wits end and we're short and we've short tempered and all of those things. I'm just so fortunate that I found someone that is perfectly suited and balanced against my personality. And uh, if it wasn't for him, I would not survive. Amen for him and and your relationship and the contributions you're making to that relationship. So let's 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 talk about one more thing before I before um, Danny uh, takes you through the steps you took after the diagnosis. Um, on our social media, you you at one point recently commented on a post, and you said that the post was triggering, and uh, and I was really interested in talking with you about the divide between validation and trigger right? Because on our social media, what we're trying to do is we're trying to validate. We're trying to create community. We're trying to be supportive. But what we find is depending on where you are, the same post may be validating for one person and triggering for another person. And quite frankly, we can generally get a sense of where someone is on their journey when they're telling us it's triggering because it generally means you've gotten past those challenges those in the, the the element of invalidation. So, you know, one of the things I said to Matt is I can't wait to interview Tony because it's clear to me he, he didn't need to be validated. He was being triggered. So give me your thoughts on that divide and how you got over the divide and how the same post maybe, you know, when you were the at the earlier stages may have been validating as opposed to triggering. Well, let me just reassure you in that it's both. For those of us who are triggered, we have to be validated first in order for the trigger to happen, right? And, Amen. Uh, I guess one can be triggered and being by being invalidated as well, but you can still be triggered and be validated at the same time. So let me first say my first reaction was validation, that I am among my kin. I am among my tribe in this particular aspect of who I am. It's not my whole identity. It's just a part of my identity. But I, 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 with you guys 
all of us are always validated, right? Even even people who from a completely different walk of life, a, a young woman with two kids who, uh, um, uh, you know, is a staunch Catholic who lives in Des Moines, Iowa, is my buddy on Instagram. And while we don't have the same life, we have we're we're kin, right? So we, we will always have that. So I was validated first, but then I was triggered and I was triggered because I have a lot of anger still. I, I, I have a lot of PTSD around this thing and those things are unresolved. Um, and, and I'm still, you know, talking these things out um, and trying to get through them. But I'm angry. I, I want my two hundred thousand dollars back. If I was a checker at a big box store, I'd be dead. I happen to have money and resources. I've taken every supplement you can imagine. There was a, I took a picture once. I had 32 supplements on my kitchen counter. You know how many supplements I have on there now? Three, you know? And so uh, I've had to fund my healthcare. I've had to be my therapist, my priest, my doctor, my sex therapist, like my counselor, my friend, you know? I've had to be all those things to myself because it's burdensome to try to demand those things from everyone around you. So you have to become those things yourself. And I resent the fact that I had to do that. I resent the fact that I don't have my money back. It's none of it's compensated. Not to, and I'm not even counting the premiums I've paid that weren't even included, you know? So there, that, that's what's triggering, for, not just for me, but for the people who, who the, I, I am deathly afraid of the child who will come down with Lyme disease because the parents don't know anything about it, right? And have their whole life devastated. Who wants to read on Instagram about a little girl getting a heart transplant, right? We don't want to hear these things. So I'm sorry that it, it, that my the word triggering would be like, oh, we're not doing what we're supposed to do. You're doing what you're supposed to do because action is preceded by triggering. <laughs> anyway well i appreciate you just voicing your emotions on the whole thing and i think you really eloquently like wrapped up what it feels like how it can be both validating and triggering at the same time um i mean i am a late stage chronic lyme warrior myself so i know the struggle of you know being diagnosed later in life and having this chronic you know, bit of it. And even for me right now, I'm 35 and I've, you know, been struggling for the past three, four years. And I'm definitely in the throes of it now where I have my wheelchair, I have my walker, I have my cane, I have my tremors, um, the disassociation to other people. And then also having an extremely supportive partner, which is, you know, makes a world of difference. Like you have with your husband, Tony, which is an incredible blessing. I'm so happy to hear that. Um, but that's part of your story. And I can so relate when you're talking about, you know, the thousands of dollars you spend, um, the countless supplements that you've had to deal with in the past, but hearing you say that you've gotten that down to maybe three supplements, um, gives, I know myself tremendous hope, and I'm sure a lot of people that are listening. So I would love to hear more about sort of the treatment side of things, um, having a better understanding of your diagnosis and kind of, I know the I know when we try to describe our story, the path is not linear and it's right. so, 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 so complex. Like you, you expressed to us before, but in terms of treatment, um, maybe how did that look 
maybe in the beginning, you said you were that moment where you were looking out on the ocean and you had those, you know, really dark thoughts, which I can absolutely 100% relate to. Um, it broke my heart to hear you say that, but it's also oddly comforting at the same time, but it's really amazing to see how handsome and amazing you are now and just kind of how far you've come. So maybe from that point to maybe that first turning leaf where you maybe started a new treatment or came across a new supplement or something that you really noticed a significant change. Can you describe to us maybe a treatment that first worked for you in the beginning and, and how that, how you came upon that healing journey where you were actually changing into that healing chapter of your life? Well, I know that there are many protocols for me and for let me first validate you, Danny. What I have come to learn through this journey, well, there's a saying. Uh, a journey is something you take alone. An adventure is something you take with people you love and trust. And I have come to be aware of and friends with people who have been impacted by Lyme, who are people who crush it in life. They're entrepreneurs or they're great moms or they're great members of their community. They're open hearts, they're hardworking, they have grit and determination and they will do what it takes. So I have been embraced into a community of rock stars, right? Who are more compelled to help others than to complain about their condition. Right. That is a very powerful thing to be a part of. Um, I will tell you that for me and the type of Lyme that I have that is more closely associated with rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, and um, and uh, uh, lupus, MS, and uh, one and um, uh, what am I thinking of? Lupus, MS, and and rheumatoid arthritis. But I have other weird things. I have lesions that pop. I have a lesion that comes in here, here, one on my lower back, one in an un unacceptable place. And no one can tell. And on my legs, uh, I can. I think there might be a picture. I can send you a picture if I didn't. But these, they, when I have a flare, so too do these lesions flare. And I only, I can only imagine what the lesions are like on the inside. So I have that. And then I have these bee stings. Like I can lift a weight at the gym and be doing great. And then all of a sudden I set it down and, and it engages uh, this, my muscles. And it's like a million bee stings and it's so bad. I'm going to pass out. I have to sit down. It's so bad. And then sometimes Tim sees me and comes running over and he's like, Oh, what do you need? What do you need? You need water or anything? I'm like, I'm okay. Last night I had a seizure at dinner. Um, when I'm having fun, I have a seizure. Uh, if there's too much going on. And when I'm uh, not when I'm stressed, I have a fit like Asperger's syndrome. I, I don't even know who I become. I'm so confused, right? Mm -hmm. The two treatments that work for that, that work for the people that I know are uh, the intravenous, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the IV treatments with oral or intravenous antibiotics, right? Or the UV treatments where your blood is exposed to ultraviolet light and then returned to your body like a, di like a dialysis, dialysis machine. I'm aware of, other, I'm aware of other protocols like a Rife machine and other things that people have used. For me, uh, it was finding a naturopath that was Lyme literate who put me on that protocol. Uh, the IV treatments with DMSO 
and glutathione and minerals and vitamin C and botanicals and lots of really good things, in particular the DMSO, as I understand it, helps the antibiotic cross cellular barriers and do its job. Okay. That's what I've been able to do. I've been, I have had so many IVs. I could lease myself out at Halloween as a voodoo doll, right? I could withstand (laughs) any acupuncture. You know what I mean? Like my tolerance to pain, but as my tolerance to pain has risen, my patience and my, my patience with appearing vulnerable or weak have uh, uh, have has my patience for it has, has is is gone. I don't want to look vulnerable. I don't want to look weak, right? And so, um, uh, I, I I fear change. <laughs> I would love to try the ultraviolet treatment, but the start it's fifteen thousand dollars just to start. Mm-hmm. If I were to switch providers, I would have to at least spend $15,000 out of pocket just to begin their treatment protocol. And who has that kind of money laying around? It's not reimbursed by insurance. Uh, you're having IV treatments right now. Are you going through the, is it the same protocol? Are you, are you uh, oral? Is, am I allowed to ask if you're oral or intravenous antibiotics? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I'm an open book. And when I was previously on this podcast myself, sharing my story, I've gotten significantly worse, uh, you know, symptomatically, but at the same time, I found a great treatment center and, you know, I, I'm further along on my journey. Um, my story is different because I'm not able to take any kind of antibiotic. So mine is hundred percent, like, you know, holistic, but right. the good thing is, which I was going to ask you, Tony, um, you know, I found a great center, a great doctor that's been really helpful with, like with the DMSO, which I don't know if I said that right. <laughs> There's right. so many things. Um, even like the, it's, it's a blue dye pill that I take and just very alternative, um, you know, like the trial and error type of things that he is extremely knowledgeable, knowledgeable about. So when I express things that I'm going through, as he watches my journey, even though he has not had Lyme himself, he can, you know, this is a great um, private out of pocket center. Um, So I've tried those things. And I was wondering um, for you now, now what I'm doing today, I'm, I'm actually on an IV machine as, as we're doing this podcast, which is so typical of the Lyme community. It's like, you know, life carries on. Like you're saying, Tony, it's like you, you know, you've come such a long way, but you still struggle so often and you have your flare ups and same with me. It's like, I'm, I'm sick. I'm on an IV machine, but I do get the motivation to keep fighting um, from the community. Like you're saying, it's like not dwelling on the pain or the weakness or the things like that but having that positive outlook and still, it's almost like we're, we're being strong for each other, which is really remarkable that we can kind of have that perspective, but we definitely need the support and the help um, of those strange, like alternative types of medicines and things that may work. Um, Myself, my next step here is I'm going to go on what's called the Weber laser. So it's actually UV and a lot of other different light therapies that are intravenously, um, through a catheter go directly into my bloodstream. So very similar to what you were talking about that's helpful for you. Now I have found that um, I'm actually at the Holtorf Medical Center um, here in Los Angeles. So for you, where did you find those types of treatments? Was it research you did on your own or was it your doctor that, a Lyme literate doctor that referred you to some of these therapies or, or how did you come across that? Someday when we have a long time, I'm going to tell you about the psychic that predicted all of this shift in 1993, and okay. <laughs> including the doctor that I didn't realize until then. But uh, to answer your question, I was at the chiropractor 
And uh, I was still two years. I was seeing the other naturopath that ran the test, but he didn't know how to treat it. He was not Lyme literate. So I was desperate. Mm -hmm. And he goes, you need to see this naturopath. He, he, people travel the world to come to him who have um, autoimmune diseases, in particular, multiple sclerosis. And so it actually was someone I, that I happened to know years ago and I knew he was a naturopath and I knew that he was like a big wig at the uh, Southwest Naturopathic College, but I didn't know that this is what he practiced. I went to go see him and he is the one who took me from zero to 60. I went, okay. from, I went from being uh, uh, on the edge of going into a wheelchair um, full-time to uh, running in two years, I ran down the beach. Now, I will tell you, um, I have to be honest with you, there is no cure. As of this date, uh, these things either treat the metabolic processes to support your immune system fighting this thing on its own, right. or your body coping with the things that it needs to fight, or the or the, the other um, um, protocols that you mentioned, they could uh, have an impact. But you'll, you'll, people learn very quickly that when you're in the business of killing bacteria, and I have two co-infections, I have Bartonella and Babesia. Babesia, as I understand it, lives in the nucleus of my blood cell. We can't go about killing the nucleus of blood cells, right? And the Lyme disease itself uh, emits a neurotoxin uh, on its demise. And so it can cause what's called the Herxheimer reaction, which you've heard of. And Mm -hmm. if you, if you have too much neurotoxin in your body, you're going to die, right? So I remember my husband dealing with my diagnosis and dealing with my condition so well until um, we had, we had, we have an annual charity event. That's a golf event. And one of the, uh, one of the most famous physicians came to speak to um, and, and research doctors came to, uh, to speak to the, um, to people there. And he was saying that uh, for those of you in the audience who are unfamiliar with Lyme disease and the treatment protocols, it's pretty much the same as cancer treatment. The, the, the reaction that you have to, the, to, to what is supposed to help you, it, it, there's a fine line between killing you and making you well. Yes. And mm-hmm. that gap between killing you and making you well, guess who is responsible? You. Yeah. They don't tell you that. Yes. Finding that out and, and finding a friend who has the courage to tell you that the difference between dying and living is you and not a doctor, not a medicine now, nothing. And so for me, the best medicine for multiple sclerosis and Lyme disease is for me to pretend like I don't have it. The less I talk about it, the less it's a part of my life, the more I focus on other things. That works for me. That doesn't work for other people. Other people need to be constantly a part of the community to be bolstered up. Maybe they don't Mm -hmm. have a good partner. Maybe they don't have a good sense of community. Maybe they don't have a strong sense of self. I happen to be the kind of person that does not accept no for an answer. But for someone who struggles with that, this is not the answer for them. But for me, diet, meditation, walks on the beach, faith, uh, giving back, uh, being of some use to the world and trying not to um, trying not to make this all about me. As hard as that sounds, mm-hmm. I, I, what brought me comfort was something I thought of just this last year. I feel like I've been projected into this body mm-hmm. and 
this body is a spacesuit and it's designed for hazardous conditions. And just because the spacesuit falters, just because the pressure valve breaks, just because the boot falls off and I have duct tape around it, doesn't have anything to do with me. And that took me a long time to figure that out. I didn't deserve this. I didn't invite it. I'm not responsible for it. And I'm not perpetuating it. And no one can tell me those things because I figured all this shit out on my own and I'll figure out the rest of it on my own. But no one told me that the difference between death and life was me, nobody else. So that was a hard pill to swallow of all the pills that I've swallowed. And when it comes down to you, sometimes, I guess we fall into two camps. You either put that suit of armor on and you go out and you face it or you hide. And uh, both, of our, both, of them are, are, both of them are valid responses to stress, right? Yeah, absolutely. And maybe there are some of us... <laughs> Maybe there are some of us who, or seasons of, of living with Lyme, right? That you can kind of be both in a sense. It's like you were saying, it's like there was those times where, you know, when you're that, that sick and you're, you're in the thralls of it, it's, you know, you, you have, you do have some guilt. You are a bit of a burden. You do feel like you want to hide, but every day you're still battling. You're still fighting. I mean, just for you to be able to get up every day and to just face it, I think is a tremendous challenge. Um, but I, you, there were so many amazing, wonderful gems that you just dropped. Like I'm drowning in them right now. So I'm oh. trying to process everything and remember, I, I literally want to like get the, get the, uh, you know, notes down the times. Cause I'm like, that's so good. I need to hear that at least three more times and probably like share it on Instagram. Um, but yeah, I absolutely. Danny, when you're in that room and you have that needle in your arm and you're trying to occupy your attention, either listening or looking and you're by yourself, that's the hardest time. That's the hardest time because it's okay to feel bad when you're at home and you don't have any help. But when you're in there and you have that IV in your arm and you're getting the help that you need and and, and it's all you, kid. I, I mean, occasionally someone would go with me when I had IV treatments, but I've had hundreds at this point, hundreds of times in that room and there have been tears and there have been laughter and there has been heartache. But at the end of it, there has always been me. You got this. <laughs> okay. While well, I go grab a tissue, because Tony, you're stirring up at me right now. <laughs> I'm like, this is amazing. Um, no, I, I really appreciate that. And you're right. I am. I'm always alone, but I always have my little, uh, emotional support service chewini dog that's with me in my stroller like at all times right right <laughs> so we all need we all need somebody that's definitely what we've concluded right from all of it um but yeah that sounds i mean honestly that was just a wonderful sort of kind of overall all encompassing you know a little little drop right of what you've been through and kind of the treatment situation and and how you kind of get through all of that and to me, it sounds like you're a tremendously strong person. I mean, I think anybody, one of the things that really, really, really hit me is when you said, um, it really is living with Lyme because like you said, there is no cure. And that is the part I feel like a lot of people, and we've talked about this many times on the podcast that people want that 
you know, golden answer, that one thing that's going to happen. And it's really having that acceptance and the courage to accept the fact that that's never going to come. And you will always have to live with this. And it comes at different levels and there's different levels of healing and there's remission and there's, you know, being extremely ill and all these things, but it's really learning and understanding your own symptoms. Like you said, when you're going through something and you're having that brain fog, you're like, Oh, this is brain fog. I recognize this. I know what this is and I know how to live and continue going on my day, despite all these things that are completely invisible, which is the last thing I wanted to ask you before I pass it over to rich, because, you know, even like you said, I'm like, Oh, you're handsome and you're amazing. And you're, you know, you've come so far and you're like, Oh, I have these lesions and I have these flare ups and these things that somebody just passing through your life or passing by, they have no idea the story that you've been telling us for the past, you know, hour already and the things that you've been through and the things that you deal with moment to moment. You know, I have Babesia as well. So my co-infections are horrible and I have, you know, trouble breathing. I have air hunger. I have all these horrible things that if I'm not talking to you, I'm not trying to be rude. I physically cannot get the sound to come out of my voice, you know, and, and that's all invisible. People don't, you know, they don't see that. And even for me to tell you, oh, you're so handsome. You look great. That could be triggering for you. You could find that offensive because it's like, you know what? Hey, don't just recognize that I look like this now. You have no idea what I'm going through. I I feel that sometimes. Thank you. (laughs) I love it. You don't know that I spent two days. I spent a week in a scooter at Disneyland and then it's yeah. only been 10 days since I've been off my cane because my mom passed in September and it did a number on me. Right. Yeah. It, uh, um, it, 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 uh, it's a journey, but listen, sometimes I wish I could open a store like an ice cream shop called dip in disappointment. And there's 52 flavors, right? <laughs> the, the hardest thing to manage is the disappointment that you want so much more for yourself. And that when these things co- happen, that maybe it's a message to slow down. Maybe it's just a, um, you know, a metaphor for what I'm doing to my body. That the reason why I'm on the cane is just because you know I need to just slow down. I don't think Lyme is bad. I, I hate to say that it's a living thing, but it's a swarm, and swarms can be bad. Swarm of locusts can devastate an entire community, right? Uh, uh, swarms are not very good and they have to be managed. And I think that that's what Lyme is. And for some of us, uh, it's really bad news. And for other people, it's not. And I don't know the reason why. And, I, and, and I'm starting to trust the tools that are available to us. But And, and it's changed over the last 10 years that I've been dealing with this. Uh, 10 years ago, there was nothing. Now, there's so much thanks to you guys. And, uh, and, and that brings me comfort knowing that someone who stumbles on, on your Instagram or your podcast, they're going to have answers. Now I never had those answers. So Tony, let's talk about the, the concept of cure, because that is triggering in the community. And, and I think it does put people in a position where they have some challenges with, um, with showing themselves the grace that's necessary to get to a, a place where they need to be. Because the truth is, um, you have had Lyme disease since your childhood, right? You didn't become chronically symptomatic, but your body was able to manage these various microbes that were in your body. Right. And then you couldn't, right? Now, if the goal is to get to this cure, and again, I don't like the word, but if you if the goal is to get to some cure, 
then then I think you're setting yourself up for failure because you never needed a cure during the entirety of your life when you were managing this. You just needed to get your body back to a place where you can manage these microbes. So isn't that really one of the problems that we have here in this community that we're setting ourselves up to fail by setting up an expectation that is just not realistic? We just need to get to a point where our body can, again, manage these microbes as a part of our microbiome and then have... Uh, a management of the symptoms and and, and have a you know a, a high quality of life. That's a loaded question. Well, and, and, that's a and question I'm... that could take three volumes uh, to explore. Um, but the reality is, uh, sorry, I just uh, uh, something popped on my screen and that was uh, unusual. Um, I. I'm less interested personally in investing in the emotions tied to whether or not there's a cure. I'm more interested in being well and be, and and being in a mindset where wellness uh, comes flows to me, right? And that I can withstand the disappointments that come from a flare or a relapse. That's what I'm most concerned about right now. I don't have a lot of faith in there being a cure in my lifetime. If it happens, great. But I'm not pinning my happiness and my peace of mind on something that may or may not happen. Because uh, my friends helped me today. We were just talking about this today in, in preparation for the podcast. And I went through a much of the same journey I've gone on with you guys in conversation. I went on with them. And my friends, in their eagerness to help me, actually did. And I wrote this down. And I said, I believe that faith is the ability to recognize that what is implied is not necessarily what is known. So build that off of me. What, what, what do you mean by that very powerful quote? Just because something smells like a duck and walks like a duck and quacks like a duck doesn't necessarily mean that it's a duck. Uh, you've heard that expression before. If it walks like a duck and it talks like a yes, duck, it's a duck. And all things being equal, that is true. However, when you're faced with unknowable questions, like, is there a higher power? Uh, is the universe endless? Are we alone? Is there a cure for Lyme disease? Where does it come from? In the absence of the totality of the truth, then we can only make inferences from good data. And often we make the wrong inferences from good data and then hold ourselves hostage or hang from a cross as a result of it or blame others. And at the end of the day, we have to, I have to, I came to the realization that what if Borrelia has made me smarter and I don't want to kill all of it off, but it's a swarm and it's killing me because it's having too much of a good time. It's in this body. It's having a party. The lights are on. Everyone's having a blast, but they don't realize they're killing the host, right? So I, in the absence of having all of that information, all I can go is on, is on what I know. And what I know is that we have to stumble on a tick boot, boot, tick boot camp uh, podcast to get answers we're seeking. And that's screwed up. That you had to put uh, this part of your life and an investment in your life to fill a gap that is not being filled by the people who we're charging to fill it, right? So let's, let's focus on that. Let's focus on the medical system and the 
the flaws in the system that are making it so that you can't get to the place where you want to get to, right? Because when we have a managed care system, and I don't care if it's a if it's a a, a a social medical system or it is it is a managed care system that we have here in the U.S., we've we've made the 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 policy decision that we're only going to dedicate resources to managing acute care. We're not going to we're not going to treat uh, chronic illness. Um, so when we're making those types of policy decisions, I think it's important for us to now educate people about what the limits of the system are going to be. And is it really one of the, the things that's causing uh, so much pain and so much disappointment is we're being lied to about what the system is designed to do. And when we suffer a chronic illness, there is no one there that is going to help us because it's not what the system is designed to do. But they don't tell us that. The whole listen. I, I have a general practitioner now through Banner Healthcare System dealing with the insurance company just to go see my rheumatologist, just to get another appointment. It's denied. We have to do all this work to get it approved. All the other doctors in the facility are approved by the insurance company, but this doctor, for same reason, not, or this, they said all the doctors are approved, but not the facility. It's ridiculous. All of it is ridiculous. And this is, and, and the fact that we have to answer these stupid questions drives me crazy. We are dealing with bad decisions, bad design, and bad behavior, period. If we loved each other, if we were motivated by kindness instead of money, we'd be having a different conversation. But everyone is so worried about what they're going to get from who they're going to get it from in this world, in this country that we have anesthetized ourselves to the fact that we are destroying each other by treating each other like shit and charging each other for it. And it's just frustrating. I wish I could be more poetic and beautiful and inspiring about the construct that I live in, which is designed to, to take people's money and deliver nothing to them. And I mean nothing. I mean a big zero fat zero egg. And it's... But Tony, I want to challenge you on that. I, I want to challenge you on that for a second because, because I, I think the system is designed to treat acute illnesses. You have a broken leg, you'll you'll get healed. You have, you know, you have um, you know, uh you have bronchitis, we'll give you a tool. I mean, it's designed not to give you nothing, but it's only designed to treat acute illnesses. And and part of what I was hearing from you earlier was you were you were talking about the the, the difficulties associated with ultimately realizing that only you are going to be able to cure you, right? And what I find most troubling about that is that you had to go on this lengthy journey before you got there. And until you got there, you couldn't heal. And my argument is when I'm merging these two th thoughts together is if they were just honest with us and said, look, break your leg, we'll help you. Right. Need, need a, a surgery on your appendix, we'll help you. Right. Come to me with a flu, we'll help you. But when you come with a chronic illness, it's you. Right. If you told me that in advance, and I don't have to go through all the pain of making that discovery that you made, and then I could now start to focus on me and recognizing that it's only me that's going to get me there. But you have to go through years of pain and suffering before you realize that, and then you could go on your healing journey. So that's really the argument I'm making to you. Right. Boy, the answer to that would be the answer to the $64,000 question. I, I don't know the answer to that question, but I feel your frustration and I echo it. And, uh, and uh, if we are in a system that's designed to manage 
uh, acute problems, then that's great. Then stop promising us and not delivering. I'm tired of empty promises and I'm tired of money grabbing. And that's the way it is. I, I, look at the words. I, I, I'm in the business of words. And so are you. you cases are went, won or lost by the story you tell, not by the facts or the evidence, right? And so we're being told so many different stories from so many different people. And it's almost like Hollywood for crying out loud. There's no there's no uh, clear trajectory for someone to become a famous actor or a successful director. Yeah, you can go to school and you can make friends and join the DGA or whatever, but the, the industry is designed to keep you out, right? It's very similar in that, that there's, there's, there's no one to be your patient advocate. There's no one to tell you how, what the rules are. There's no, and the rules change depending on who you're talking to. So not even the rules are the same. And it's and for anyone suffering from chronic illness, you don't have a moment to waste. And somehow they think that scheduling, oh, the doctor doesn't doctor doesn't see new patients for two months. I'm not I'm not able to see my new neurologist for three months. And I had an acute case. I had lesions on my body and I was begging to come in and see the neurologist. And they said, uh, sorry, he doesn't see no patients. Uh, it's going to be three three months from now. Okay, great. I'm in an emergent situation and I'm going to wait three weeks, right? So, so let's take the next step of, of, of what we were talking about, Tony, because I, I think this is really vital. Because the only way that you're going to get to where you are is if right. you step out of the system, right? But you didn't know that you had to step out of the system because nobody defined the system as an acute care system for you. So you struggled and you struggled and you struggled expecting that you were going to get an outcome and you couldn't because it was a system that was not designed to help you. In fact, I'll use your term. It was a system that was designed to keep you out, right? Right. So now you, you made your peace with having to step out. And I know you're upset that you've had to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to get out, but at least you now know right. there's a place for you to go and there's a process for you to use and then you could get better and you are doing wonderfully, right. you know? And again, I don't want to trigger anyone by saying you look good, but you look great, right? Because right. you've made improvements because you stepped out of the system, but it wasn't until you realized that the system wasn't going to work for you. And it wasn't until you realized that it was going to be about you, that you could take that step and get to a place where you can get to where you are now, but we have to step out of the system or we're not going to get better. Very, uh, very wise and very true. Uh, if you think about the words, health, care, naturopath. Health, care, uh -huh, really? Maybe if you need a broken leg fixed, but naturopath, what is it? It's a natural path to wellness. Health care, you're constantly caring for acute. You have no plan for chronic is exactly what you just said. And they're perpetuating the big lie on all of us that you can have a chronic condition and the healthcare community is going to take care of you. There's very little care in healthcare. There's a lot of care in naturopath. And so quite interestingly, naturopaths aren't covered by insurance companies. In fact, I applied for life insurance and was denied because of my Lyme diagnosis. And I, and, and yet it's not covered by health insurance that doesn't recognize treatments for Lyme disease. All right. The but, same now, insurance company. But Tony, now let's talk about the good thing about stepping out of the system, right? 
Because right. when you're working within the system, then there are going to be limits to A, the amount of time that a professional can spend with you. It's going to be less than 15 minutes. B, right. the amount of time they're going to listen to you. It's going to be 11 seconds. Right. And C, they're going to be limited on the type of care that's going to be available to you, meaning the treatment protocol. Right. When you step out of the system, those limitations are not on you any longer. Right. You can work with people who have a different treatment background, a different right. treatment philosophy that right. are bringing both Eastern and natural protocols to the, the menu of options you have available to you. And now we can design a protocol that's particular to us and to our presentation when you can't, when you're working in the system. So give me your reaction to that. I know you're angry about having to step out, but I'm arguing to you that it's beautiful that you can and you did because I don't think the traditional tools are going to work for everyone and we're not going to be able to get to the treatment protocol that we need if we don't have someone that can take the time to listen to us, take the time to spend with us and give us a larger menu of tools to try in order to be able to get to um, a place where we're remitting our symptoms. Right. Um, once you realize that, um, you have to make your own club, <laughs> uh, 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 if you watched, uh, the golden age, uh, it was about, um, you know, the golden age in America, uh, is the 1890s, right? And you had your old money in New York city and you had your new money. Uh, young and up and comers that had uh, uh, sometimes a great deal more money than the old money people did, but the old money people ran New York City. And Mrs. Vanderbilt came rising up and she wanted to be part of society. And Mrs. Uh, um, uh, Mrs. Astor said no. And Mrs. Astor had a ballroom that only held 400 people. And those were the society, the old money. And Mrs. Vanderbilt said, fine, you don't want to be friends. We'll build our own opera houses. We'll start our own charities and we'll create our own culture without you. That's what we need to do. We need to create a medical construct that is designed to help chronic uh, patients that does not erode their health, but lifts them up and helps them, right? And it will take money and it will take voices and it will take a revolution of us of a certain kind for people to get together and unfortunately it's very hard to get sick people to go out and petition and raise hell so we can only stimulate people who can understand or relate or maybe who are part of a community that's benefiting the ALS community is benefiting from the ice bucket challenge right we don't have a unified voice around Lyme disease there's a inherent sense of shame around people who have Lyme disease because of, we could spend an entire uh, pro, uh, podcast talking about the reasons why, but the reality is, is that that's there and it will take what you just described. And I think it's a brilliant idea and I think you should lead it. All right. So now let's talk about one more piece of this. And, and that is, and we started to talk about this earlier, but let's talk about outcomes, right? And, and the only way that we can get to a destination is by visualizing the destination, having a destination, right? And when we're using terms like cure, which is really a, 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 a term that we can use with an acute illness, 
we're putting ourselves in a position where we don't have the capacity to visualize the outcome that that is achievable. Whereas if we're if we use a different term, which would allow us to to uh, develop a proper mindset for the outcome and a proper proper um, image for the outcome, then our mind can take us to where we're going. So so let's go back to that conversation we were having before, which is another one of the problems with the acute care system is is it we're being put in a position where we are looking for a cure and we're expecting that there is going to be a cure when in fact what we have to just be able to do is to find the natural path i really love the way you describe that to a place where we can manage our microbiome and therefore remit our symptoms right uh, well i love the idea of living in harmony with everything with all things right? And um, uh, pathogens are pathogens, uh, and they have a purpose uh, uh, all to their, uh, all of their own to exist in the world, right? Um, but uh, creating a place where people can get well uh, is a very important thing. I think it's quite ironic that uh, that that uh, invisible diseases like ALS, Parkinson's, and multiple sclerosis have so much research, so much funding, so much money, and yet we have something that is a smoking gun, but we have invested no money, no time, and no energy into as compared to the other things. I mean, if you look at the continuum of investment in other diseases, Lyme disease is here and they're there. And for the people that listening, take a ruler, an entire ruler and do a quarter of an inch versus uh, 12 inches. We're lucky. It's probably an eighth of an inch as compared to that as, as far as the research goes. One research uh, grant was uh, initiated by the Department of Defense to for Lyme, to, for detecting Lyme disease. If we had a good diagnostic tool, that, here's the thing, you back into it. If we had a diagnostic tool that was 100% accurate, then all of these discussions about whether or not chronic Lyme disease existed would fly out the window because not only would acute patients be testing positive, but chronic patients would be testing positive as well. And I think that there would be a collective oh shit moment in this country where they suddenly realize 13.5 million Americans have an acute infection and that 20 to 100,000 Americans have chronic or more millions of Americans millions and millions of Americans. How are we gonna handle that? The only way we can handle that is instead of trying to fix the problem, which we probably can't at this point, like you just described, create a diagnostic tool that is 100% accurate. And then let's see where the chips fall from there because then we can start funding these things. Then we can start taking it seriously. But when you're going to a doctor who denies that you even have the disease that you have, we have a problem. So let me, Pause there because we're going to talk a little bit more about the good work that you've done um, in your um, in your uh, public life, and I want you to just pause for a second and give us a description of where you are now, and right. um, if you had to talk to the Tony who was first diagnosed, what is it that you would want him to know about the journey that you've had to go on so that he could have had an easier path to where you are now today? Uh, where I'm at now is that I am uh, I have chronic Lyme and multiple sclerosis. I manage it through diet, meditation, stress relief, and I act like I'm retired, even though I'm not. 
I don't let anyone push me around, tell me where I'm supposed to be. I set my calendar and no one tells me they want to meet me at uh, eight o'clock on Monday when it's been six months and they decide they finally want to pull the trigger and they want me to jump. That doesn't happen in my life anymore. And no is a very powerful thing. When you start to you start to put a fortress around yourself and take yourself seriously, the universe responds. So that's the first thing. I have relapses. I have flares and they are heartbreaking. Sometimes a relapse will come on and I'm in bed for a week and I run a business and I have to rely on my husband who's the president of the company to take care of things in my absence. And I'm very fortunate, but that's the reality is that stress and um, lack of self-care can cause me to relapse or to have a flare. And they have varying degrees of intensity. Okay, so you've, you've created a container for yourself where you can have a healthy professional and social life. So build that out for us right now. Um, you are still working and you are still um, uh, a, a, a large uh, force within a very successful business. Uh, and you have a good partnership with your husband professionally and personally, where you also have um, a vibrant social life, right? So you are, you are in a, you're, you're in a good place, right? I'm in a good, I'm in a good place because of what I just described. I created the life I wanted for myself, including my calendar, the people I associate with, people who are allowed to have my phone number. I withdrew uh, considerably from social media and um, I cherish the true genuine relationships around me. I have a very low tolerance for BS in my life. I can see it coming from a mile away and I don't invite it into my life and I show it the door as soon as it arrives. So that's been really helpful. And when you have a chronic condition, you find yourself constantly apologizing. I'm sorry, I can't be there. I'm sorry, I don't feel well. I'm sorry, I'm this. I stopped. I said, I can't be there. And I don't have to explain myself. That is a triumph when you have to deal with stuff like this. So that's where I'm at currently. And uh, what was your next question? So I, I I want you to go back now and and give the Tony who got the diagnosis an action plan for the steps he should take to get to the place where you are, not just emotionally, but physically. Right. Uh, the first thing I would tell him to do would be... Hmm. I don't know anything about Lyme, right? I'm just talking to the person who doesn't know what's going on with him. The first thing I would say is uh, uh, look into your Rolodex and find someone in the healthcare industry who is like a healthcare administrator, somebody really high up who has a science degree too, who might be able to direct you to the right place to start to get answers rather than mucking around you know, and worrying about who's in your plan and are they covered or anything like that. Find out who the top mind is, the, the top diagnostic doctor in your state or another state and go to them. I would have gone to the Mayo Clinic and I would have walked into the Mayo Clinic and said, I don't know what's wrong with me, but I need your help. That's probably what I would tell him to do. And then I would say, find the best naturopath in your city. Okay, and then what? what's the next step? reach out, uh, do your research. And um, uh, whew, man, I don't want that was see, I got to think about this for a second, because that's a very long, arduous journey, uh, the research part, and I was not in the frame of mind to even comprehend, you know, uh, peer reviewed journal 
uh, science, uh, but I had to, right? I mean, you've looked at those tables in seven point and you're like, what am I looking at, right? And I have a brain fog to boot. Um, I would say, uh, I would say find um, Abraham Hicks and the law of attraction. Uh, I would say, um, look at the best yogis and take their advice. I would say, cut out all the dead wood in your life and the dead people and focus on yourself. I would say, uh, suit up. You're a warrior and you can do this. Um, I would say you are loved and you don't need to prove how strong you are through this illness to be loved. You don't have to prove shit to anybody, even yourself. This just happened. And have faith. Have faith. So what I, what I keep hearing from you, you know, the, the sort of the thread that I'm seeing through all of this brilliant advice you're giving is be mindful of your energy, right? Yes. You need to recognize that you need to heal you, right? right? So if you have people in your life who are sucking the energy out of you, you have to excuse yourself from those relationships because you need to have the energy to focus on you. And so that was seemed to be the thread that I was hearing while you were given that really brilliant chronology. So right. tell me if I'm hearing things and if I'm not, uh, tell me, tell me about your perspective on energy. Uh, everything is energy rocks, inanimate objects. They all are energy. Um, on a quantum level, they all vibrate. The subatomic particles that make up everything you are, both here and not here at the same time. It's the idea of them that uh, uh, that we first discovered, let, uh, not them themselves, quantum particles, right? Um, there's more space between atoms than there are between planets, um, comparatively. Uh, and uh, energy is uh, ebbs and flows. Right. You think of the uh, plug that goes into your wall. You don't see the electricity, but it has current. It has viscosity. It has pressure. It's just like water traveling through. And so it is sustaining uh, energy from the sun, energy all around us and energy responds. You see like uh, music and uh, 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 you see um, shards of uh, of uh, magnetized metal that dance as a result of the vibrations and the, and the energy that's around them. Uh, you put off energy and you attract uh, the same kind of energy to you. Uh, if you're a victim, how many people rush to the victim's aid, honestly? How many people are champions for a victim and are there for the long haul from beginning to end? Nobody. The victim is always on their own. The victim is, so get out of the victim mentality and get into the warrior mentality. Hey, who's the puppy? That's uh, <laughs> that's one of my three dogs. Right. So, so now let's 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 take let's take this now to the next uh, and final step of 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 your story, which is your transformation. Talk about what's been beautiful about this experience. T tell us what you've learned about you and what you've learned about your purpose and what you've learned about your capacity and how you're applying that to helping other people in this community and in other communities. Well, for me, it started with social media. Um, I used it as an outlet to tell my story. Um, I was worried. I was more worried about coming out about Lyme disease 
than I was about coming out about my orientation to my clients. I was more worried that they would abandon me when they found out that I had Lyme disease than any other than any other reason. So I really thought long and hard and did some deep introspection about whether or not I wanted to tell that story. And I found at the end of the day that I was more interested in helping one person um, overcome what I went through than I was any of the naysayers out there. And there have been plenty. Why do you always post so many selfies? Why, why do you always show yourself at the gym? And what I'm doing is I, I'm posting that there to put it out into the universe. I'm not interested in the response. In fact, I've turned off uh, how many likes I get on stuff because I don't care about that anymore. I'm, I, I put that out there into the universe to say, even if it was the best picture of 100, I put the best picture of 100 out there and let anyone come and tell me I shouldn't. I put it out there because I said, that's who I am. Babe Ruth used to step up to the plate and he would point past the uh, the outfield to a building over the fence and he would line it up and he would go up there and he would hit that ball and that's exactly where the ball went. He wasn't didn't do that because he was egotistical. He did that because of law of attraction. He said, that's where I'm going and I'm going to aim for beyond that. I'm going for that building, not the fence, but the building. And that's the same thing. So we're coming back to the outcome discussion we had before, right? When you're posting a picture of you looking good, that's the outcome that you're seeking. And now, you're, now your mind can take you and teach you what the how is to get you to the outcome that you actually want, as opposed to the outcome that, uh, that the acute medical system was offering to you, which is a cure. Right. Um, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? There's a book written in the 1600s called Pilgrim's Progress and the character is good intentions and it leads the guy to hell, right? And so the world is full of, of, of good intentions and bad design and poor decisions, right? And the best thing you can do is get rid of your trash thinking. Uh, find those yogis who talk, who teach you about mindset. Get rid of the little angry voices inside of you. Get off the cross that you're hanging. Get out of the shower and stop thinking of all the dialogue that you would have said to the person that did something to you 25 years ago, right? Get out of that victim mentality and become a warrior, but become a gentle, loving warrior with yourself first. And then learn from the people who really get how to be happy. And they're not, they're not focused on how to be well, they believe that they that that well that being well flows to them that they that they deserve that and they honor that and i found that when i started practicing meditation when i started focusing not on being a victim but being on uh uh a strong human being that cares about other people and and share where i can that's when i turn the corner big time so I would love to end there because that was so beautifully said, but I am going to ask you one more question before I let you go, because you've been so wonderfully generous with, uh, with your time and, and, and your really powerful journey. And that is, we, we've spent a lot of time talking about that wonderful man you're married to, who's been an unbelievable, um, you know, faithful force in this really painful, you, you, really painful journey you've been on. Let's say, God forbid, Tim came into the room right after you you finished his podcast and he had a tick biting him on his arm. What steps would you recommend that he take so he wouldn't have to go on a chronic Lyme disease journey? Uh, the first thing we we would first thing we, we would do is we have a we have the device to remove it safely. We would remove it safely, and I would 
um, I, I would, unfortunately, I would probably violate a bunch of rules and I would give him a course of uh, doxycycline immediately, take him to the emergency room, explain that what, what has happened and demand that he be put on three weeks of doxycycline and that he be tested with a highly sensitive rather than to rely on the Western blot. All right, Tony. And, and then, uh, yeah, we would just, uh, we would just uh, hold hands and pray for uh, strength. And you and, and and through the process of supporting him, you would try to keep him in a place where uh, or help him to keep himself in a place where his stress level was low so that his immune system and with the assistance of uh, of the doxy uh, would uh, help him to manage the microbes in a way that wouldn't cause him to be overrun. Well, we would do a complete role reversal. I would have to abandon all of the things that would drive him crazy and instead become him because he's going to become me now. He's going to be impatient. He's going to be tired. He's going to be scared. He's going to be upset. He's going to be frustrated. And what he needs from me is calm and compassionate and patient and uh, self-aware to the point where I, I can anticipate what his needs are before he asks for them. Amen. So Tony, I can't thank you enough for taking time away from Tim and your family and, and all of the wonderful people that you, um, uh, you know, that value you and and their time with you but you know you you we were really really looking forward to this interview and you quite frankly didn't disappoint you in fact uh -huh. you even exceeded expectations so thank you so much for taking time out of your life and 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 your family's life to share um all of the powerful insights you've sh shared with our folks here at take boot camp thank you so much rich thank you for all the good work that you're doing and god bless thank you for listening to the tick boot camp interview with tony felice to our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you would like to learn more about Tony, please visit his Instagram page at Tony Felice, A-Z-N-S-D. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick Bite blueprint that is inspired by the information that has been provided by past guests on the podcast. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note we would appreciate any input or improvements you would like to offer. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast, or Spotify to get automatic episode updates from our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank you, our community, for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on Apple Podcasts, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thanks so much for listening.